0: What became very obvious, it became very obvious, in in fact, under Trump, because Trump did not disguise, as it was done before by previous president, the fact that he's using the, the law as an economic weapon.
1: This show has said its piece about Europe's inimical tendency to freeload on everything American, from defence spending to woke historical revisionism, but if there ever was an American trap, Frédéric Pioci knows what it feels like being inside.
2: Hell, he wrote a memoir about it, but the book's title alone cannot do justice to what it felt like being locked up behind the freezing bars of a maximum security prison in Rhode Island with the key thrown into the Providence River Delta. Or worse still, hand it to the invisible generals and America's economic statecraft against its own ally.
1: Frédéric was a senior executive at French industrial giant Alstom, and his falling into the throes of a late 1970s U.S. law written to combat corporate money laundering is, is, in his own telling, exclusively explained by General Electric's predatory acquisition of Alstom's power and grid capabilities in 2015. Among the world's largest ever industrial acquisitions,
2: America is waging economic war against its supposed allies, Frédéric argues, and it is high time that we meet fire with fire. GE has lately run into its own share of trouble and seems to no longer want to go nuclear. But the stain of Frédéric's book form tale and the otherwise cordial history of transatlantic economic ties can hardly be erased. If this episode succeeds in sparking a rethink on either side of the Atlantic, rubbing salt in the wound will have been worth the effort.
1: Was Frédéric's American Trap merely an anecdote of our global economy becoming more and more hostile and competitive? Or are Europe and America frenemies in denial? Maître Laurent Coentanogie is a French legal delicatess at the New York Bar and a Vice President at the Jacques Delors Institute. But he isn't one to throw around terms like economic war lightly, so his pushback against Pierrotchi's drum beating will likely spare this episode a DOJ investigation. Enjoy, and don't forget to rate and review us, as it always puts a smile on our face to see your support and helps us keep getting fantastic guests week after week. Thank you very much to both Laurent cohen and Freddy Pierucci to be on Common Decency. Laurent, you're a lawyer, you're a member of the Paris and New York Bar, as well as the VP of the Institut Jacques Delors and the founder of Laurent cohen Avocat. Frédéric Pierucci, your founding partner of the compliance risk management consultancy firm Icarion, and the author of the best-selling The American Trap, My Battle to Expose America's Secret Economic War Against the Rest of the World. Thank you both for coming on the show. Before before we we, we begin covering the, the question of today, which is the question of economic sovereignty, I want to talk a little bit about Frédéric Pierucci's personal experience, which is very relevant to this conversation and the main reason why you're such an important actor on this issue. Um, so you were, Frédéric, you were an employee of a French multinational Alstom and in 2014, while you just set foot on American soil after a flight, you were arrested. Can you tell us why you were arrested? What happened to you over the past seven years? And um, and after we get this experience, it'd be interesting to see if Monsieur Cohen has also some similar experiences um, he can he can share with us.
0: Yeah, uh, thank you. It's a very long story, so I'll try to, to shorten it a little bit. Uh, uh, I was a senior executive of a French company called Alstom. So just maybe for, for the sake of uh, everybody, uh, just remind everybody what was Alstom. Alstom was one of the top French companies involved in three big sectors, power generation, power transmission, and transport. Transportation, so we are manufacturing high-speed train and so on. So uh, the strategy of the company back in uh, in the 2010 was on the power generation side to uh, merge our activities with the ones of our, the ones of our competitor in China, Shanghai Electric. Uh, and on the transport side, it was to uh, have um, our Russian uh, client, basically uh, partners to uh, take an equity stake in the company. So my, I was at that time the head of uh, one of the big divisions of, of the company and my uh, division was to, to be the test of this merger with the, the Chinese uh, competition so i did for 2 years a carve out of the company i moved the headquarter from paris to uh, to singapore negotiated with the chinese joint venture so i i arrived there in singapore at uh, in august 2012 and um, i was traveling very often to the united states because i had about 700 people manage over there and when i uh, traveled there in april uh, 2013 uh, i got arrested uh, as i was stepping out of the plane at uh, jfk airport so um the main problem is that i didn't know i had been indicted Uh, my indictment had been kept uh, sealed because uh, if you are a french citizen uh, that's what they do Uh, So, I was um, basically uh, accused of having participated in a bribery scheme 10 years back. And uh, what the prosecutor from the Department of Justice uh, explained to me was that uh, 10 years ago, Alstom won a contract uh, in Indonesia using two consultants and um, at that time uh, I was aware that Alstom had uh, had hired those consultants and therefore I should have known that uh, those consultants were going to uh, use some of their remuneration to pay bribes to to win a a contract. So it's a a long story but basically I spent uh, uh, 14 months first of all in a high-security prison uh, pending uh, either trial or, uh, in fact, I, I, after a few months, I, uh, I pled guilty. Um, uh, and if you want, we can explain t- to the audience uh, how this is working uh, in the US. But you know, out of 100 p- people indicted, 90% uh, plead, uh, plead guilty to avoid mm-hmm. a long, very long prison time. And during that uh, period, um, I studied at length the the law that is uh, was uh, was uh, used by the United States to uh, basically arrest me, which is the Foreign Corrupt Practice Act. Uh, and I discovered a lot of things when I, I studied the law in detail. Uh, to cut a long story short, uh, at the end of the day, um, the, my company was very much destabilized by uh, by this. Uh, uh inquiry into investigation inside the inside the company and two-thirds of the company was sold to our biggest competitor at that time which was general electric so i'm sure we'll go through this in more detail but uh, this is the bulk of the story
1: and i really recommend people go over and, and read your book the american trap it is a, a terrifying personal experience because you had a uh, to to be in, in high security prisons in america for a very long time and also a kind of a fascinating inquiry on the way the American judicial system uh, worked in, in that scenario. Um, but, Monsieur cohen from your experience, is M- Monsieur Pierucci's uh, story a exception or have you in the past seen similar scenarios?
3: Uh, no, it's not an exception. There, there have been other uh, similar cases. Um, not, not too many, fortunately, but, but that exist. Um, and myself, I have been um, uh, involved in a in a case in a somewhat more relatively more favorable situation, uh, in the sense that I'm um, I'm representing uh, another French executive of a French uh, multinational company uh, who has been uh, also indicted not not on corruption charges. But on on uh, some other um, economic regulation charges against the company, uh, and uh, that person has been uh, indicted. But contrary to uh, Mr. Pierucci, uh, the indictment was officially notified um, while she was still in in France. Huh. So um, so she was not uh, arrested and. Um, uh, I was able to organize for a defense from France, which uh, has its limitations and complications, but it is a, a much more favorable position than uh, than uh, Frederick uh, Prici uh, has been in. And so
1: let's 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 take kind of a general look at the situation because situation. Al- Alstom was a fifth company which was acquired in full partially by General Electric after the opening of a corruption inquiry from the Department of Justice. The fifth company, there's a bit of a pattern here. Um, Under the FCPA, the Foreign Corrupt Practice Act, we've seen some 36 fines that were worth $100 million or more. And of these 36 fines, 27 of them were paid by non-American companies, including a vast majority of European companies. So there's a bit of a pattern here. How, How has the United States managed to build this which is a very impressive legislative arsenal. How has he managed to do that in the past decades? And how has he used this legislative arsenals to push forward uh, American economic interests? Maybe Friedrich first.
0: Yes, uh, just a little bit of history. Um, this uh, law, this uh, FCPA, was enacted in 1977 after a major scandal, which was uh, involving Lockheed Martin, the manufacturer of, uh, of aircraft, uh, who were uh, basically recognized uh, that he had paid bribes all over the world. So at that time, uh, Carter decided to to, uh, to criminalize uh, corruption of public officials, and uh, the FCPA law was uh, was enacted. Uh, the problem is that it created uh, 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 asymmetry uh, and a disadvantage for American companies against their competitors, especially European and Japanese competitors, because in Europe and in Japan, all the multinational companies were going to their Ministry of Finance to declare the bribes they were paying overseas, and it was deductible from their uh, uh, income statement. uh, statement. Uh, So, um, And that lasted uh, until basically 1998 and 2000, so during the f- this first phase, uh, uh, v- those American companies who were at a disadvantage uh, put a lot of pressure on US Congress so that the law uh, di- did not really apply. In fact, you had one or two cases per year. That, that's always v- very small uh, fines. Uh, but then uh, in, in 1998, the law was transformed and uh, it become, became extraterritorial, in meaning that uh, before 1998, it applied only to US company. After 1998, it applied to uh, every company in the world who had the sm- slightest link with the US territory. And uh, and the US used basically two channels to uh, to make sure that everybody's under US law. The first channel is uh, uh, is the US dollar and the SWIFT system. Mm-hmm. Every time you make a, a contract in US dollar, you are linked to, to the US territory, and therefore, uh, the law applies. And the other thing, uh, the other channel is a channel with, of um, the internet, with, uh, with especially the GAFA. So if you use emails who are stored and or transit through US server, uh, basically you touch US uh, territory and therefore mm-hmm. the law uh, similarly uh, applies. So uh, um, uh, what we see is that from 1998, there's a, a big increase in, uh, in fines uh, and it really starts in the year 2005. Um, up to in 2005, the US Department of Justice and US Treasury uh, collected about $10 million fine worldwide uh, by applying the FCPA. Uh, last year, it was uh, almost 3 billion. So you had an exponential use of the FCPA after it became extraterritorial and the main target has been uh, European companies. As you rightly said, uh, about two thirds of of the fines uh, are actually paid by European companies. So I started with British ones, uh, British Aerospace, with uh, Norwegian Statoid, French one Alcatel, Total, Technip, uh, German ones, Italians, uh, and so on. And so Laurent, is that your experience as
1: well?
3: Well, I would like to to nuance a little bit uh, what has been said, particularly in the in the question. There's this whole rhetoric about uh, economic war and uh, this sort of quasi conspiracy theories between the link between uh, anti-corruption enforcement and uh, acquisitions and all that. But again, there, there's a little bit of uh, of a conspiracy theory here. Uh, let's. Um, one thing that Frederick did didn't mention is that in 1997, the OECD uh, entered into, uh, I mean, the OECD member countries into entered into the uh, anti-bribery convention, which means that the same principles uh, as the SCPA uh, were adopted uh, by all the OECD member states, And then uh, the member states had to implement national legislation to incorporate uh, pretty much the same principle, which took uh, a bit of time. And certainly in terms of uh, enforcing uh, the then national laws that took uh, even even longer. Um, When you look at the the figures over the years, there's been a a period uh, where in fact European, I mean, non-US companies and the European companies were uh, had to pay the, the largest fines because they were sort of late in the game and it took a while for, for companies to uh, to adjust to, uh, to the new rules as Frédéric mentioned, uh, until 2000 uh, bribes paid by uh, French companies were tax deductible mm. with the blessing of the Minister of Finance. So it took some time for European and French companies in particular to to adapt. But um, if you look at the, at the longer period, uh, fines and number of prosecution are, are pretty even between US and non-US companies. And if you look at the, the most recent uh, years, uh, in particular 2020, you'll see that the focus has shifted. Uh, first of all, that in 2020, there are actually more US, proce- US company prosecution than non-US companies. And as far as non-US companies are involved, uh, Asian companies and um, and Latin American companies are, are more targeted now, and the reason why is that European companies have had uh, more time to uh, to adapt, and and mm. also European governments have started. And I'm sure we'll talk about this some more. European governments have started to uh, take care of their own of their own companies, which they were not
2: doing uh, until recently. Mm-hmm. Mm. And there's um this is this was uh, fascinating uh you both and and one of the one of the reasons we're, we're really uh you know happy to, to bring you uh together uh and and kind of share perspectives is to try to parse out what uh you know is is uh verifiable facts from from what uh, uh, uh mrji was was um i think ra- rightly uh, uh characterizing as perhaps more in the <laughs> in the realm of conspiracy but i, I mm-hmm. think that, you know regardless i mean the reality i think and the the bite and the the, the of, of uh, mr pieucci's testimony is that regardless of kind of what's the um the origin these uh this, these major uh, european industrial players are, are are being you know hardly hit by uh, the ability of u.s law to uh uh to be implemented outside of, of the country's borders and 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 this really leads us into kind of the the main um uh, uh, contention and, and, and it, which is, you know, what, how you see uh, the larger issue here playing out, it, you know, it, it seems like we're, we're entering a, a phase, uh, for instance, in European industrial policy, where we are beginning, uh, to see a lot more, uh, rhetoric around, uh, you know, uh, industrial, uh, champions and how we can help them compete on global, in the global playing field. And so, um, what are, what are some of the ways that, uh, Europe for instance, could be, um, emulating what we've what we've seen uh, the United States do over the years, particularly since uh, this this law in particular. What are some of the ways that you see uh, the global competition, really not just in Europe but worldwide, evolve in ways that uh, ratchet up uh, this sort of uh, this sort of extra uh, territoriality?
3: I mean the first and, and most important way in my view, and that's what uh, European governor have started to do, is to, as I said, and uh, force their own laws against their own companies, and that's the approach taken by France with the the loi sappendeau in 2016, uh, by the UK with the UK Bribery Act a um, uh, couple of years earlier than that, uh, and uh, I think Germany has now a, a bill that uh, it goes in the same direction uh, that incorporates and what what is called non-trial resolution negotiated resolutions uh, like the, the third prosecution agreement in the u.s and actually enforce those laws and and that actually works because if you look at uh, one of the biggest resolution of last year the Airbus case for example uh, there clearly the lead was taken by france and the uk and the U.S. Uh, DOJ took a back seat, and both in terms of the prosecution itself and and in the fines. And so we we are seeing, and we're going to see more and more what is called multi-jurisdictional uh, resolution and international cooperation, where the countries that have the, the strongest interest in the in the prosecution will will take mm-hmm. the lead. And so I think to me that's the best way. The second way is, of course, to when when there's a and abuse and, and particularly when there's a conflict of substance between uh, various uh countries and europe and united states for example and, and right now there's only one domain which is the uh, iranian sanctions because the trump administration as you know uh, quit the um the iran uh, nuclear agreements and um, and that created a real uh, foreign policy and, and legal conflict. But in all the other areas, whether it's anti-corruption or tax fraud or other things, the laws are aligned. So there's no reason why there should not be uh, cooperation uh, in enforcing those laws. But when there's a, an abuse, when there's a conflict, then uh, Europe uh, must have um, you know tools to counter. The
2: extraterritorial application of, of U.S. law. And, uh, uh, Mr. Piaucci, you were obviously, you know, a, a, you know, senior executive at a major uh, European industrial uh, giant. What's what's kind of your your perspective, and, and kind of bringing that from your experience from from the corporate world into these larger issues? How do you uh, how do you see them?
0: Um. You know, you, you know, I, I, as you can imagine, we don't quite agree uh, on, on some of the issues here. Um, hmm. I think at the end of the day, you need to be very factual on on, on all of this. I spent 25 months just looking at every single case of FCPA, both a corporate and and a individual case. When you do a very detailed analysis, you you see this uh, asymmetry is really blatant. You know, I just give you uh, a, an example. Uh, in the power generation industry, you know uh, there were basically four major competitors in the world. You know, uh, Alstom, uh, A- ABB, Siemens, and the Japanese, plus the Americans. So all of them, all the non-American company, you know, Alstom, ABB, Siemens, Hitachi, all got uh, fined by the U.S. Department of Justice for infringement yeah. of the Foreign Corrupt Practice Act, and that happened as rightly said uh, since 1998 since the, the law it became extraterritorial law uh, but on the opposite side since 1977 the apply the, the law applies to american companies you know were involving the same sector and you have many many american companies in the power generation sector ge westinghouse bechtel you know sergeant and so on you have tens of, of them in 50 years the FBI has never been able to find a single case of an American power generation company uh, breaching this law. Uh, you can call it conspiracy, whatever you want. At the end of the day, there's a big asymmetry of of sanctions and they don't look the same way at American companies, at at, at European companies. So we can always say European companies are late in bringing uh, compliance into into their culture, which is true. Uh, But I don't think compliance is uh, is always also in the culture of American companies, especially in uh, oil and gas, power generation, telecommunication sector. So this analysis I've just done on power generation, you can do it exactly on the telecom business uh, side, on the telecom sector, you can do it in the oil and gas sector. Uh, big oil and gas companies in the US have never been uh, 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 indicted, uh, uh, never breached the FCPA according to the Department of Justice. So the Chevron, Exxon and so on never breached anything in 50 years, whereas, you know, total, any, uh, Statoil and so on uh, breached it. Yeah. So. Uh, What became very obvious, it became a very obvious in in fact under Trump because Trump did not disguise as it was was done before uh, by previous uh, uh, president, the fact that he's using the the law as an economic weapon. And I will give you a few examples of this. Uh, When uh, back in uh, last year, you had uh, William Barr, the head of the Department of Justice who declared that just after, after, after having put a one billion fine to Ericsson, uh, that uh, U.S. investors should buy either Nokia or Ericsson to control the five G network. Okay, and it's at the same time where I have uh, put a big indictment on on uh, on the Huawei uh, CFO. So this is a a clear uh, message that the department of justice you know is uh, is playing a very strong economical role it would not it would be inconceivable for uh, the french ministry or minister of justice to say that in the economic interest of the country uh, a french company or french investor should buy this and this uh, company abroad so but in, under trump this became very obvious he also um, uh, mentioned several times that, for instance, uh, he uh, could do something to uh, release or to settle the case of the uh, Huawei CFO if he could come to an agreement between uh, China and, and the US uh, uh, on uh, on the economic war. So here it, it shows that he has a direct link with the uh, the Department of Justice, and the, basically the Department of Justice is doing whatever the executive power is uh, is uh, saying. So. Um, and you have many, many examples uh, uh, like this. You have the ex- same example with a uh, North Stream 2 uh, pipeline mm-hmm. between Russia and, uh, and, uh, and Germany. So what, how we are we re- reacting to this in, in Europe? At least now we, we have started to, to, uh, to realize uh, what's going on. Uh, it costed us $14 billion in France uh, before we started to realize this uh that's the amount of fines that the uh, french company have paid over the last 10 years for having infringed uh, various extraterritorial uh, us laws so as uh, laurent just mentioned we reacted by enacting in 2016 the sap two uh, law uh, and the step law was done as a reaction of the alstom uh, case where basically we lost uh, in, in addition to the fine we lost uh, the control of our nuclear power plants uh, so we reacted to this, and we decided two things. One, uh, we decided to, to impose on all the French companies above a certain size to implement a strong compliance program, which I fully agree with Laurent. It was very necessary to to uh, to, put, uh, to put this. Uh, so, uh, and we used also this law to uh, basically. Uh, try to repatriate into France some of the cases which were uh, under investigation by the US and by the UK. So first we managed to uh, to settle uh, the Société Générale case. Société Générale was under investigation by the US authorities for the last uh, few years and uh, thanks to the Sapin Law we were able to make a deal with the Department of Justice and the fine was paid 50% in the US, 50% into France. And then with the Airbus case where uh, also, Airbus was under investigation by the UK and the US for several years. And thanks to the Sapin 2 law, we were able to uh, get two thirds of the three billion fines paid to the US to the French Treasury instead of the US Treasury. So uh, vo- this law um, is, uh, is a defensive law. It, 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 enables, it enables us to, to make sure that uh, to, to be able to, to treat the cases of French companies in, uh, uh, in France. Uh, the UK has done uh, has done the same. Other countries are, are doing the same, but there's no uh, real coordination at European level to uh, to, uh, to to do this because it's uh, it's a criminal uh, prosecution. So therefore, it's uh, every state who's, who's basically acting on the, on its own to uh, to try to uh, to define its own uh, its own companies. And there have been a lot of. Uh, uh, uh books and and and, and reports published uh, because you had a, a parliamentary inquiry after the alstom case mm. uh, where a lot of people were heard in uh, during in, in the french uh, parliament about this so at least we woke up in france now i think it's, it's a major step we woke up it, it it has costed us a lot before we woke up but at least now we are moving forward
3: if I, if we have time, I'd like just to yes, go ahead. nuance a little bit uh, a couple of things that that Frederic uh, said. Uh, first of all, I, I don't have a sector by sector uh, analysis of the of the prosecutions and fines, but all I know that many uh, U.S. companies are uh, are prosecuted and fined by uh, by by the U.S. government in in, in many sectors. Um, the other Important thing that we should not. Make. I'm certainly not going to defend the Trump administration and its uh, undue interference with uh, uh, the independence of the Justice Department. But uh, the reality is that most of the of the fines and the prosecutions against European companies were done under the Obama administration. Mm. So it, it, it's not at all. Um, I think we should mix the uh, the aggressivity of the of the Trump administration. Uh, which really waged an economic war, not only against Europe, but also against China and others, with the uh, regular enforcement of, uh, of the FCPA or of sanctions, which, which is a constant and which was particularly strong under a democratic administration. So these are really two different things that we should not mix.
0: No, for that, I fully agree, uh, Laurent, I mean, we, we, whoever is, an, is at the top of the country, it is going to be the same. Uh, but the ones, uh, the administration was really industrialized, uh, the FCPA uh, uh, against uh, and weaponized the, the FCPA against European uh, companies is really Obama, you are perfectly yeah. right. Uh, just uh, nobody uh, said anything when it was Obama. Uh, we had to wait until Trump uh, basically said loudly what Obama was doing uh, quietly, but uh, we no, started to... to, to, no, to- that,
3: that's why where, that's where I disagree. I don't think Obama was doing anything quietly. Obama had an independent Justice Department that's enforcing the laws, uh, whereas Trump was uh, unduly intervening in, uh, in judicial affairs. It's a very, two very different things. And uh, as you noted, uh, Ferech yourself. I mean, those those European companies were actually paying bribes. There's no deny; they all acknowledged it. And so uh, the question is, who uh, sanctions them? If it's not their own governments, then uh, it will be the, the U.S. And uh, as far as the acquisition of uh, by GE, it was also the decision of the, the CEO of of Alstom, as you as you very well know. So you uh, you also have to hold accountable the the management of those uh, of those companies and not only the um the, the, the u.s authorities there's also a big responsibility of the of the
2: of the management of those companies yeah and it's it's really great again to to um, to have you know the the kind of the the blend of you know an, an experience and sort of um uh legal reasoning uh, that both of you bring to sort of have that um uh, you know be, be in dialogue so that we can uh, better kind of envision what it is we're facing and and i wonder uh, precisely on on uh, what um uh, quintanuji uh, was was alluding to whether we're looking at a friendlier scenario with a new white house that is already signaling that it it is open to uh, using multilateral for uh, um the OECD is one example but i think others could be could be um could be thought of and and uh, we we have uh in the biden administration i think a uh, a partner where uh, the concerns that you both are bringing up are are perhaps going to find um, uh, you know a, a better audience. So I think um, it, what I wanted to ask you is is, is um what, you know is there is there any sort of um, multilateral uh, way that that a lot of these wrinkles get solved? Or um, uh, because I I did find that it's some of the comments that Mr. Uchi made were really interesting. Uh, I mean uh, you know you did mention also specifically the French case where. Uh, you know a lot of these companies that they do and bring these concerns up to to the to, um, to the French treasury they get um you know they, they they don't get the same uh sort of attention but uh it's it's not and 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 we've seen uh president macron i think building up uh a whole um uh layer of his uh vision for strategic autonomy around industrial policy and, and ha- you know going about helping uh, industrial champions at the european level in a more deliberate sort of way that takes account of the actual, um, you know, market conditions that, in, in, in worldwide, that you're that you're mentioning. So, um, taking you know, taking into account that we do have a more, uh, uh, that we do have uh, a Macron setting the tone for the sort of conversation on the European side, but also a new Biden administration. Are you um, are you hopeful that these things eventually get solved out um, at, at in you know, in a multilateral fashion?
3: Well, I mean, uh, again, we, we should really uh, distinguish domain. When you talk about industrial policy, you're really talking about competition law, antitrust and, and all that. Uh, that's really a conversation uh, for the Europeans. It's been, it's a long, uh, it's an old story. And the uh, French are always pushed for industrial policy um, and criticize the uh, EU competition law. Uh, whether that's going to evolve now—that will obviously require the uh, consent of other member states, uh, particularly Germany. So that's one one conversation. The other uh, topic is whether we're going to see more uh, international cooperation between the U.S. and and Europe. And my answer is is yes, probably, as long as France, the U.K., Germany continue to um, you know participate in the in the fight against. Uh, Transnational corruption and other economic um, uh, delinquents. There, there will be more uh, of these multi-just, uh, multi-jurisdictional settlements that we have seen with with Airbus. Uh, I think yes. Uh, I think the Biden administration will be certainly inclined uh, to uh, favor uh, to favor those.
0: Um... Well, I think at the end of the day, uh, um, whoever you have at the White House is not going to change much uh, that uh, the fact that uh, um, the US economically uh, doesn't want to have uh, competitors in Europe, Uh, so um, we will see uh, what happens. Of course, uh, uh, laws like the uh, Sapentu law in France and UK Bribery Act are going to help to raise, raise the level of uh, compliance inside uh, in French uh, and European companies. But uh, what I would like to see is the opposite uh, on in the US, uh, on US industries. Um, who's going to put the pressure on US uh, companies to also uh, uh, stop uh, paying bribes uh, all over the world. I mean, uh, it's it's uh, striking that uh, uh, we seem to be always the, the the bad guys who are paying bribes to win uh, contracts. I mean, look at uh, what all American companies are doing in uh, in uh, many many uh, countries. They have been winning uh, contracts, uh, paying bribes uh, in in many many uh, countries. Look at Saudi Arabia or or, or whatever. Uh, and have never been really caught and or prosecuted by their administration. If you look at at why you have U.S. companies on the uh, top FCPA list, it's mainly because was was. Uh, investigation have been started against U.S. companies abroad. That's why the U.S. government has, has been able to, to repatriate those cases and there are no other options than then to put a fine on their companies. But if you look at Alcoa case, uh, Ali Burton uh, case, uh, uh, more recently this year, Goldman Sachs uh, case, it, it was never uh, the US who really started the investigation against their own company. It was started uh, abroad. So we should not be naive in, in, uh, in this. Uh, okay, we are going to raise the level of uh, compliance in our, in, our, in our companies. But if we want really to stop the attack uh, using extraterritorial laws uh, uh, by the Department of Justice, we, uh, we will need to fight back at one point in time. And that's what we were able to do uh, twenty-five years ago on antitrust, uh, because the U.S. also put big fines on antitrust against a European companies at that time. And at that time, okay, we are not twenty-seven; we are much, uh, a much smaller number. And what we did is that we fought back. We also put big fines to U.S. Co- to U.S. companies on antitrust. The result being that now everybody is looking at uh, after their own companies and no longer trying to to. Um, uh, to target uh, uh, the other side. Uh, on anti-corruption, we're not yet there right now. Right now, we are more on a defensive uh, uh, side. Uh, what we have to take into account as well is that, uh, okay, we're talking about anti-corruption, but you have over uh, extraterritorial uh, uh, laws. For instance, everything regarding sanctions, um, everything regarding the Cloud Act uh, uh, and the transfer of personal data. Uh, every uh, year or two years, you have a new extraterritorial law which applies to uh, European companies. Yeah. So, therefore, we have to uh, build an arsenal of uh, French and, uh, and European laws, which we start to do with RGPD and, uh, and so on, every time to counter those, uh, uh, those US laws. And this is not uh, easy. And tomorrow, we're going to have the same thing coming from China. Uh, because of course, China is starting to be also targeted by the US. We've seen the Huawei case or the ZTE case, and uh, China is building now its own uh, legal arsenal uh, of uh, laws which uh, uh, will become extraterritorial one day. The first one being on export control, which was enacted first uh, of December two thousand and twenty. So where they are going to basically respond to the, uh, the OFAC of uh, of the US, the US side. So the, the, the world is going to be very very complex for companies going forward because for one single contract you are going to have multiple multiple laws applying to it both on the export control and on the corruption but also on on, on, on data and data protection and this is going to be more and more complicated for compliance officer to uh, to, uh, to play their role and to, for legal counsel to play their role and it's a great opportunity for, for, for law firm because you're going to have conflict of laws uh, uh, more and more often going forward.
1: So um, speaking of China, Mr. Piochi, your book was a major bestseller in China after uh, Meng Wanzhou, she's the daughter of the founder of Huawei and the CFO of a company. She was arrested in Canada following an extradition request from the United States. So let's talk more kind of more generally about situation. It's about the situation in the United States. It's, you know, last question, but where do you see the EU um EU's position among amid the trade conflict between China and the United States? Um, how much should they kind of leverage the situation to rebalance its relationship with the United States? And to what extent should it also side with the United States over, over China? And uh, maybe uh, Laurent first?
3: Uh, well, I think this is, uh, again, a, a very different topic uh, than the, the question of the extraterritorial application of, of US law. Um, the, the situation with Huawei uh, is part of real, here it, where we can really talk about uh, economic uh, war or, or, you know, or, or technological competition, which with sort of military and strategic implications. Uh, this is something that's, um, you know, and here we, we have some uh, dangerous, uh, potentially dangerous, uh, and, and even troublesome behavior, where uh, you know somebody's arrested in Canada, and then the Chinese arrest two uh, Canadian citizens have nothing yeah. to do uh, with with the situation, and and that's uh, totally arbitrary. And that that's really a, a, we're in a different game here it's uh you know it's uh, an arbitrary use of the law and that's something that's uh very dangerous um as far as europe's positioning in this in this uh, conflict uh economic and technological um i i think that you know europe you know has some diverging interests vis-a-vis uh, China from the US and also even within europe uh, member states have very different mm. attitudes but on the whole uh, europe and the United states have a have a very strong common interest in uh you know countering especially the uh, the aggressivity of the current Chinese leadership and so we, again we should not um, confuse uh, or mix uh, you know potential disputes uh, over the application of a law that that is again common to the to the West, with um, you know the, the, the much more significant uh, technological, economic, and potentially strategic competition between uh, the West and China. These are two very different things, and Europe should not uh, be mistaken in uh, trying to play uh, arbiter or uh between uh, between the two we clearly are on the uh on the western side here
1: so mr pirachi maybe a, a few words on your uh, celebrity in china after that uh, Meng Wanzhou um uh, case and you know a few words on on the, the uh trade tensions between the united states and and, and china and the, what you think europe can make out of it
0: well i think the country has been the most aggressive against european company has been clearly the us so far not china uh if you've seen uh, if you look at uh, at the history of uh of fines being paid by european companies, if you look at the history of uh, uh spying on 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 european uh, companies i think uh, it looks like everybody forgot uh what uh, uh, snowden told us uh, in 2013 what did he tell us is that he told, told us that the nsa was working with more more than 100 uh, American companies, uh, the GAFAM, uh, to spy systematically on all Europeans and on all European uh, companies. And there was a a specific document uh, which described that uh, the NSA was particularly targeting all companies in France who were negotiating contracts above 200 million dollars. So it means that every single uh, uh, manager of big French company were uh, basically taped and spied on by uh, the NSA. So if you call this uh, regular uh, uh, economic uh, system, uh, I would strongly disagree. Uh, so right now, uh, why they are fighting against uh, China on the 5G is that, uh, because they are two years late compared to, uh, to, to Huawei. So it would be much more complicated for the NSA to spy on Huawei equipment, 5G equipment, than on uh, Ericsson, Nokia, or Cisco uh, or Cisco equipment.
3: And how about China spying on US and European companies, Today, You're not concerned about that?
0: I'm very concerned about that. That's why I'm I'm very concerned that the Chinese are going to do exactly the same as the U.S. is doing. Yeah,
3: except that the U.S. are strategic allies, not the Chinese. I mean, that's a big
0: difference. uh, Well, my my, again, my view is that we should we should have a third uh, a third uh, uh, route. Uh, We don't have to align neither with the U.S. nor with China. I think we are uh, the the World War II is finished for for the last uh, 75 years. The Cold War is finished for the last 30 years. It's about time that Europe wakes up and be uh, a third route and uh, be uh, uh, strategically independent from the United States, both uh, legally, uh, um, numerically, uh, and also military. Uh, that's the problem right now. We are we are still uh, living uh, in a post World War II uh, uh, world. Um, I'm very worried about both sides right now. And, uh, uh, but the, the ones who has been the most aggressive so far has been the US over the last uh, few years. Uh, China is a potential threat, I agree with you. So that's why I, I would not align with neither of them. And I think it's very important for uh, French uh, companies, speci- specifically, to uh, regain sovereignty on, on very uh, strong, uh, very specific uh, assets, very sp- specific uh, uh, industries we cannot afford to be uh, the vassal of the US. Sorry, I, I, don't, I don't want to live in this world where we continue to be uh, the vassal of the US.
3: No, no, I agree, but uh, you know, I think legally it's, uh, it's within reach for Europe uh, in terms
2: of uh, militarily, I think uh, we are far from it,
3: mm. unfortunately.
2: Well, I, I really uh, cannot stress enough to the both of you um, how worthwhile that these kinds of conversations are for us, and I we hope for a broader public. And we're we're really appreciative that you uh that you uh, that you read to the to the concept of this um this episode, and and you know we, we are very cognizant that these issues are very sensitive uh, for the both of you, and and really our our whole hope was to kind of begin from uh, uh, Frederic's very harrowing story. Uh, it's a story that it really is very compelling, and and it really needs to be looked at, um, and 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 to try to, you know, enlarge the, the 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 focal lens towards perhaps some of the larger picture that can be gleaned, um, and, and some of what uh, you both have alluded to, I think, goes in that direction. You've mentioned, you know, the the case of Iran sanctions, um, uh, you know, some privacy issues, but. I, you know, I, I think it's, it's really such an important conversation to have our, our um, you know, and it, we, we began with the sort of the, the issue of, you know, how, you know, the, the extraterritorial application of these, of this very niche law, what, what, what strikes one as, as, as a very niche law, but it really hints at a larger problem, which is, you know, we, we're, we're in a world that, that seems to be evolving. I think on this much, we, you, we can get uh, you both to agree, uh, we're evolving towards more economic statecraft, more lawfare. As Mr. Pierucci alluded to, and, and companies are getting caught in the crossfire, and, and that's uh, uh, we're, we're so appreciative that uh, you, you know, working in in, uh, in in that sort of environment, you've you've agreed to the concept of this of this uh, of this show, and I think we have succeeded in in uh, in, in, in making it relevant. So, um, really, thank you both uh, so much for for uh, for agreeing to this. Um, again, uh, Mr. Cohen uh, Koentanuji is a is a lawyer in both the Paris and the New York. A bar uh, and, and he's also a vice president at the uh, Jacques Delors Institute, and uh, Frédéric Quirucci is an obviously best-selling author, uh, go get yourself a copy of The American Trap, uh, and he was uh, a senior executive at Alstom. Um, so thank you both again so much, and we look forward to, uh, to uh, discussing with you again on, on another occasion. So, Frédéric Pirucci and Laurent cohen Tanugi are out. What did you think of this episode, François?
1: First of all, I'm so very glad we are able to have them both on the show. I, I read Frédéric's book a year and a half ago. And I remember being, first of all, so shocked by the personal experience mm. he lived through. I, I highly recommend people um, go and give it a read because he is treated like some kind of maximum security threat to america he is surrounded by ra- russian mobsters and 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 drug dealers and and criminals and pedophiles you know very dangerous in it you know he he has all these horrendous prison experiences uh that you can imagine those kind of maximum maximum security prisons so that part was i thought really shocking and makes for a very uh gripping book and and the other part which was shocking is um, you know, the the other side of the book, which is the, the way America uses some of its uh, legal tools to advance uh, America's economic interests. And it's it's a natural thing for fixed states to do, but it is done with incredible uh, energy and at times, in Friedrich's case, viciousness, because his life was was pretty much uh, destroyed for for five years. So I really recommend everyone to go give a book a read because it it gives a a powerful overview of these, of these t- topics, because he now is one of the leading experts on the question of economic sovereignty and economic warfare. Uh, there's a reason, because when he was in prison, he had one hour per day in which he could use internet. And he used that one hour per day to, first of all, work on his case, but most importantly, read on all the history of similar companies who had ended up being um, investigated by the DOJ. And then you know, the General Electric or another company would come in and and, uh, and and buy a part of a of a European company being being investigated by the DOJ. So, I highly recommend people go over it, and it's an important insight on on US EU relations that people need to take into account. You know, we're, we're allies, and we've always been, uh, but that does not stop us from sometimes having uh, light economic warfare in the shadows.
2: Yeah, and. um yeah, and it is it is a pretty important point to stress that this was um, kind of a bombshell when it came out on uh, French media. I, I think mm-hmm. uh, Frédéric did uh, did a sort of a radio uh, radio taped series where he kind of goes in in some depth yeah. of some of the events you describe, and and it really was um, really was a, a massive success when the book came out, and I think he was. Um, Aided by a French journalist at L'Opse, Le Nouvel Observateur, was, was, was still at the time Le Nouvel Observateur, now they're, now they're called LOPS. Yeah. Uh, some, some journalists uh, helped him out in in writing the book. And um, I mean, yeah, legitimately so. I mean, this was a bombshell because it is a bombshell. And um, you know, um, and I, I was also pretty pretty interested in uh, what you what you shared with uh, what what actually what Frédéric shared with you and us about his book being also a massive success in China. And we can get into some of why that that happened uh, towards the end. But um, yes, I mean, I I do concur. I think at the heart of this whole tale is just the sheer um, pain of like Frédéric's experience. Like why the hell did this happen? Uh, Why did a senior executive at a French, at a leading industrial giant worldwide, I mean, Alstom is is a worldwide um, institution. Why did he have to endure this harrowing, you know experience of being locked up in a high security prison i was even you know before we went live i was asking you what why wouldn't he uh why wouldn't he ask his um his uh, prison guards to be uh, afforded uh you know allotted some sort of um uh luxury spot within rikers much in the way that the old school you know capo di Capi of the, the Italian american mafia used to used to have why wasn't he wasn't he able to to uh, carve out some 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 luxuries and some, some little even just some some amenities within them, Rikers because it, it is it is a pretty harrowing experience for a senior executive to be locked up alongside mobsters and criminals, real criminals. I mean, yeah, uh, not not blue collar <laughs> criminals. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, um, I do think that one kind of um, threat that kind of uh, reemerges across the episode is the difference between. What initially in the 1970s was written as a bill to combat genuine money laundering. I mean, as, as, you, as you and I were, were discussing just a second ago, money laundering is a real problem across the developed world. We have like a lot of uh, almost like kleptocratic practices where businesses uh, bid for contracts in very untoward ways. Right. They, they, they afford themselves the illegality of paying bribes to public officials in order to win contracts. And that's a huge problem. And it's a real problem. And I think America is absolutely right to want to to design uh, a a legal architecture where it is able to combat uh, those kinds of practices and in other uh, countries and other companies operating in America, primarily. I mean, again, this was um, an American industrial giant looking to um, to have uh, Alstom's energy branch merge into its um, into its, uh, energy capabilities. Right. So, so I do think there's like grounds for, uh, America to want to have those kinds of practices like monitored and governed. Right. Um, what I do not, what I do concur is not legitimate is, is for that initial architecture to be used like 30 years, 40 years down the line, uh, in in some sort And like, I, I do think like there's, there's, you know, we, we should probably get some, some, lawyer friends into the episode someday to discuss this, but I do think there's even some prosecutorial issues with how, uh, the American prosecutors, uh, you know, um, um, essentially like went back to this very old bill to do something that had, I think still, I think in the eyes of like, just even like a lot of like American lawyers, very little to do with, with this 1970s, 70s law. And we, 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 we would need to go back to the, to the case that was made at the time, but this is, the, the, the gap between the toll and the purpose is pretty striking in this case what the what the bill was was lit, was 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 written to accomplish and what it was used to accomplish at a specific uh, point in time in this case uh, Piucci's case and I would be really interested in hearing you and I, I know you've got you got a lot to say but I would be really interested in hearing your experience as a, as a French um, reader of, of uh, Piucci's book whether or not you would have gotten the same um, chills, reading about Frédéric's experience had this been a German uh, businessman Mm. locked up in in Rikers?
1: No, I I think so. There's there's this humanity about about this book which makes you connect with it. Uh, The the fact he's French made me worried about my country more than it made me worried about this person in particular. Um, I think had he been, you know, Chinese, I would have had exactly the same reaction. But the reason why this law changed the 1970s essentially it was a response to the kind of American malaise of the 1970s of corruption and whatnot. But quite quickly, American companies complained that they were being uh, beaten by foreign competition who could give bribes and not them. And they they changed the nature of the law to make it uh, extraterritorial mm. and, and yeah. create a level playing field. Yeah, but essentially, as much as America is exploiting that law. There's also a case to be made that Europeans have been too naive and should have, first of all, too naive with the United States, but also too naive with their own companies. The reason why the Americans' um, uh, prosecutors were able to uh, to push out some spies is because the French government didn't push out some in the first place. You know, Had these cases been taken in, into account in France and had French prosecutors actually prosecuted out of stuff in France, there wouldn't have been a case for America to do that. The reason they did it is because France didn't do it. So there needs to be kind of a uh, a large effort in compliance. And something else he tells, which I think was really damning for France and, and probably for most European countries is, as a senior executive of kind of a very strategic com- company, if a scenario like that happens, you should be prepared. You should know what what to do. And he was arrested. He had no idea that was possible. And he had no idea what to say. He had no idea what means to use. And so he was completely, uh, you know, the, the the DOJ ran circles around around Alstom and, and, and Pierrot in particular. I think now it's not the case. I think I think PLG and others have done a great job um, making sure that senior executives know the risk they 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 face and know what to do in if a scenario if such a scenario presents itself. Uh, yeah, and I'm but sure a it, lot it says of, a lot about how naive we were, and 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 I think it's moving on a little bit.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure a lot of corporate policies were rolled out at the time worldwide, not just at Alstom to to monitor some of the um, the travel of their executives. Um, um, uh, adjusted for the legal uh, jeopardy that they could find themselves in, would they travel to a jurisdiction where they're being, where the legitimate grounds for them to be eventually um, prosecuted would, uh, you know, this, it really reminded, it almost reminded me of a DSKS uh, case where, because I, you know, I was watching, when we did this episode a couple of weeks back, I was watching, at the time I was watching uh, the new Netflix special on Dominique Stroscan, mm. who also, and I, for a whole, host of different reasons found himself in the throes of um, a pretty a pretty a pretty pretty solid legal um, architecture to, to combat you know um, sexual criminality um, obviously try to sneak out through the back door and uh, didn't work out well well for him he was prosecuted in, in New York and um, so it kind of reminded me it was almost funny that we did it at, at a time when this this new Netflix special was being rolled out. But in any event, it was so, it was so great to have uh, Frédéric and Laurent uh, share their, their thoughts. And Frédéric's a very harrowing experience with us. Do remember to rate it and review us on every podcasting platform, whichever one is your favorite. And we do look forward to, to welcoming you for another episode next week.
1: See you next week.